we've been in a series called I Love You, But You're Driving Me Nuts, where we've been exploring all the treasure and trauma of being in a relationship. And maybe you have felt the treasure and trauma way more intensely during this pandemic. I know that I have. And so today we're talking about how to make things grow. Specifically, we're talking about how do we make relationships grow? So for the next 25 or so minutes, I want you to keep one image squarely in your mind. Your life is a garden. You are the gardener. And all your most cherished relationships will either blossom, bloom, and bear fruit, or wither, dry up, and perish, depending on how you cultivate and care for them. Now, at first, that might sound like a lot of pressure or maybe even bad news. Maybe you, like me, are in real life a terrible gardener. The fact that I'm a terrible gardener is made so much worse by the fact that I have tried really hard at it. A couple years back, we were a week out from my wife's birthday, and I thought that I would plant her favorite flower, Gerbera daisies, all around our property. So I got some from Home Depot, and I replanted several windowsill planters all around our house full of them, lots in the backyard. And I thought, surely these will last a week, and they'll look great on her birthday. 72 hours later, they were all drooping, and within five days, none of them had any leaves. They were all gone. Some of them were so bad that the planters looked worse now than they were before I replanted all of them. The backyard looked so bad that on the morning of her birthday, I had to tear them all up and just put down some mulch. And that wasn't even the worst part. As I shared this tale with the party goers during the birthday party, I learned Gerbera daisies are not her favorite flower. Another time I went to check our succulent collection and they were all dead, all of them, succulents. I killed them all. Recently, my son Frankie, who's three, has started to do this thing where he'll run into the room and say, dad, bad guys are coming. And I'll say, oh no, what should we do? And he'll say, we should die. And I'm pretty sure that's what the plants say when I pick them up from the store. What should we do? We should just die now, get it over with. Now, I feel bad about this, not just because I'm not very good at gardening, but also because my maternal grandmother was a brilliant gardener. She grew up in the depression era, so she had all these extremely resourceful and neat skills. She could shoot a pheasant and darn a sock. She could remove any stain and sing three-part harmony, but her special gift was with plants. She had a legendary green thumb. In fact, I remember friends and family would bring her dead and dying plants and she was well known for resurrecting them. She had this metal staircase on the side of her house. And because of the angle of the house, each stair on the staircase would get a different amount of sun. So I remember each morning she would be out there first thing, adjusting the plants along the stairs so that each one got just the right amount of sun. But the best plants at her house were the ones that she had always had, the ones she'd been cultivating for years. She had these thick, huge, lush aloe plants. And whenever the grandkids would get a sunburn, she'd break off an arm of the aloe plant and drip the juice on our dry, burnt skin. She was a gifted gardener. Now, the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end can be understood through this single image, a garden. In the beginning... The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden. So right at the beginning, the Bible invites us to think of God as a gardener. And then, as gardeners do, 
God bends down to work in the soil. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This gardener God is earthy. He is personal. He is near. In Genesis chapter one, God is the God of the cosmos far off creating stars and planets and moons. But in Genesis chapter two, God is down close getting his hands dirty. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till and to keep it. But of course, humans don't till and keep this garden. And by Genesis chapter 12, everything is ruined. And of course, there's a lot of other plot points in the development of this garden. And we'll get to some of those for a moment. But for now, let's skip to the end. At the end of the story, a follower of Jesus named John of Patmos had a vision of how things would end. At the end of all things, when this gardener God has healed and restored everything, John of Patmos saw this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. On each side of the river stood a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And in this garden, this renewed garden, God walks with human beings once again, just like the first garden. John of Patmos also saw this. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell among them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. And now that God is with humans again, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The end of the story is this, the garden flourishes again. All things have been fixed. Garden at the beginning, garden at the end. Now, in this story of the garden, from the beginning all the way till the end, there is a force that opposes this gardener God and his grand project. And this force is called the desert. The desert is where the Hebrew slaves have to wander once they've been rescued from Egypt, but have rejected this gardener God who rescued them. The desert is where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And when Jesus announces that he is going to change everything they say about him, make a straight path in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. And so on one level, the Bible is the story of a struggle between a garden and the desert. Green flourishing plants that bear fruit or dry withering desert. And the same is true of your garden. Your relationships will either thrive or wither based on how you water and cultivate them. And so I wanna give you three Bible-based, scientifically-backed ways to water your garden. And I'll give you a fourth bonus way if you stick around till the end, but let's start with these first three. Now, these will work well for any relationship that you want to blossom. Three simple ways. Say thank you, ask a question, say a prayer. Let's talk about the power of saying thank you in relationships. One 2015 study concluded that expressing gratitude towards your partner is the most consistent predictor of marital quality. And I submit that saying thank you would work great for any kind of relationship. The Bible suggests that relationships between followers of Jesus are supposed to be different. They're supposed to take on a different tone and character than relationships out in the world. And the Bible has a single word that captures this difference in behavior. It's the word aleleus in Greek. And that translates to the phrase, one another. And this phrase, one another, is used a hundred different times in the Bible to capture almost 60 different commands on how followers of Jesus are to treat one another. 
Some examples. Love one another. It occurs almost uh, 16 times. Consider one another better than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. But the one that I want to talk about here is encourage one another. You are commanded by God to be encouraging. And that means if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, wherever you go, at home, at work, in the neighborhood, at the store, there should be a trail of encouragement following along behind you. This means that among followers of Jesus, there shall be no more Karens. If you're not familiar with the concept of a Karen, Karen is internet lingo for someone who is acting entitled. For example, maybe overly demanding of the retail staff. Do not mistreat those retail staff. Consider them better than yourselves. Now, a word to people actually named Karen who don't behave this way. I have deep sympathy for you. My name is Matt, and my name is associated with being walked on. And I'm very sorry to you that this is your cultural moment. So we're commanded to be encouraging and to say thank you is a powerful way to encourage someone. It's a countercultural way for you to nurture your important relationships. And there's a pretty remarkable scientific explanation for why the simple act of saying thank you is so good for relationships. A study in 2011 found that saying thank you to your partner led to a more positive perception of that person. If you say thank you to someone, you end up viewing them more positively. In this study, a group of couples were given a series of questions to evaluate one another. And then one group of couples said thank you to each other for actual things going on in their relationship, while the other group did nothing. And then both groups were given another set of questions to evaluate each other. The set of couples who said thank you scored higher on the second evaluation. Proverbs 11.25 says this, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Interestingly, this can be translated, whoever waters others will be watered. A few years ago, my wife and I took personality inventories and her results said that expressions of appreciation were particularly meaningful for her. So I went on a mission to say thank you as often as I could think of it. And after a few days, my wife said, this is refreshing. I like this. And so I learned saying thank you is a powerful way to encourage someone. It's a powerful way to nurture your most important relationships. So maybe you're watching on your computer or on your phone. I want you to pause right here and tell someone in the room with you, thank you. Or text someone you love, maybe an old friend and say thank you to them. And then come right back here immediately before you get distracted. Say thank you, ask a question, pray a prayer. Let's talk about asking questions. It turns out that asking questions is a garden thing to do. In the first garden, in Genesis chapter three, the humans have failed to keep and to till the garden. They've broken the one rule that God has set before them. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and the knowledge of good and evil. And then after the humans do this, they hide. Isn't that such a human response to screw up really royally and then to run away? Now, the daily routine for those first humans and for God in the garden was for them to walk together with God every afternoon. And then on that particular afternoon, when God comes to walk with them, he cannot find these humans. And so he asks them such a mysterious question. He could have asked, what have you done? Or how could you? He could make a statement instead of a question. But he asks, where are you? 
Now, presumably God knows exactly where they're hiding. He is God after all. So this question takes on several deeper layers. Where are you emotionally or where are you spiritually? Or what does hiding your physical person say about the rest of you? This gardener God asks his wayward children a question. Asking a question is a garden thing to do because it's a relationship thing to do. Even though these humans have ruined the garden, this gardener God still loves them and wants a relationship with them. And by the way, this gardener God loves you. This gardener God wants you to thrive and blossom. He wants your relationships to thrive and blossom. And what question might this gardener God be asking you right now? Just by the way. Well, it turns out that asking questions is a fantastic way to nurture relationships. In the 1990s, a researcher named Arthur Aaron set out to craft a scientifically backed list of questions to make you fall in love. And so he came up with a specific list of 36 questions. And later researchers said, well, they don't really make you fall in love, but they are really great for promoting close and deep relationships. They're really remarkable questions. Some examples. Question number 14. Is there something that you've dreamt of doing for a long time and why haven't you done it yet? Number three, before making a phone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say? Why? Number five, when did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? One question, question number four, it goes like this. What would constitute a perfect day for you? I got to talk about this with my 15-year-old niece over the summer. And she said that she would read all morning and then do immunology research in the afternoon to help with the pandemic and then have dinner with her family. And then at night, she would fly to California to end the day at Disneyland. And then we got to talk about all of it. It was so much fun to talk with her that way. Asking any open-ended question is good for your relationships. Like the gardener God, ask questions because you love the other person. We're gonna drop a link to these 36 questions in the chat. And we're also gonna put it in the YouTube description. Sit down with someone important to you this week and ask them a question. Say thank you, ask a question, pray a prayer. A powerful and mysterious passage on prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5:18. pray without ceasing. It's powerful, it's mysterious, but it's also overwhelming. Like it would require this heroic effort to spend the whole day in a quiet room alone petitioning God. And maybe sometimes that's okay to do that. But Dallas Willard argues that heroism of this kind is almost always incompatible with following the humble Jesus Christ. Instead, he argues that to pray without ceasing means to invite God into everything that you'd normally be doing each day, to ask him to bless and guide you as you move through your daily routine. Just ask God with your for help with your normal stuff. It's a way of partnering with God to nurture your garden. Dallas said this, everything that comes into your day, every person, every activity, and even or especially every interruption is an opportunity for you and Jesus to bless. If you're gonna make biscuits, bless them. They will taste better. No matter what you're doing, try to remember to bless it. Whatever it is, say the Lord bless you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord make you the best that you can be. See this as resting under the good government of God, under his loving gaze and care. Lift everything up to him in that way. Train yourself to use each change of person or event to remind you to pray to bless. Then mere change becomes a signal to turn your mind back to God. Do this and you will shortly master the secret of praying without ceasing. So, 
Learn to pray your way through your daily routine. God bless this morning schedule. Bless the morning as I interact with my family and we all get ready for our day. Bless this Zoom meeting. Bless this dinner I'm making for my two hungry kids. This activity is especially powerful for relationships. The science backing the power of prayer in relationships is surprisingly strong, or perhaps it's not surprising depending on on how you look at it. One study found that people who prayed for their spouses more often reported having less stress in their marriage when compared to those who prayed less often. Another study looked at 200 couples married 10 years or more and found that couples who prayed for each other had higher marital satisfaction and higher levels of commitment. And this will work with any relationship. The key, according to the research, is the kind of prayer that you pray. It can't be prayers like, please, Lord, make it stop, or please remove this burden from me. Instead, they have to be prayers that focus on the other person's well-being. In other words, prayers of blessing. And I want you to start now. I want you to get into the habit of praying prayers of blessings for the people that you love, even when they're driving you nuts. Well, let's practice this together. Ask the Lord to bring someone to your mind that you can pray a prayer of blessing over. And maybe this is a spouse. Maybe it's a child or a family member that doesn't know the Lord. And this is a chance for us to just focus and ask God to bless that person. Let's sing this together. Pray this together. The Lord bless. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Baby, be born in a thousand generations. 
and your family and your children and the children and the children. May His presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you. He is with you in the morning, in the evening, in your coming, in your going, in your evening, in your rejoicing. He is for you. 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 gardener. Say thank you, ask a question, pray a prayer, water your garden. I said earlier, I'd share a fourth way to make relationships grow. But maybe as you looked over the other three ways, you're thinking, coming up on a year of the pandemic, I am way too tired for those. Or maybe you're thinking something darker. At this point, maybe you're thinking, I don't even like my family or friends. I can't imagine investing in them this way. I can't imagine saying thank you to them. I'm trying to imagine my life without them. Well, this fourth way is for you. Now, the key plot point between the ruined garden at the beginning of the story and the restored, perfected garden at the end, interestingly enough, this key central plot point also takes place in a garden. After Jesus was crucified, the Gospel of John tells us that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been placed. And then on the third day after Jesus' death, some of Jesus' followers entered that garden to visit his body. And John tells us that they see the risen Jesus. He's somehow been resurrected, but they mistake him for the gardener. Jesus, standing there resurrected, asks his follower, Mary Magdalene, what she's doing in the garden at the tomb. And she says this, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Then, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go to him. Early Christians said that the resurrection of Jesus meant that he was now king over everything, that he was now in charge of the universe. And the creed that captured this idea that Jesus was in charge 
was the phrase, Jesus is Lord. That's how they would greet one another. That's how they would sign their letters with a reminder that Jesus was in control. And this was good news because all the powers of this world, the greedy and the cruel and the violent forces of this world were now dethroned. And Jesus, the kind and humble and gracious Jesus was now in charge of the universe. And he's going to bring new life to all things. And the gospel of John's playful and poetic way to say that Jesus was now in charge of the universe is to say in this passage that he is the gardener. He is now responsible to make the universe flourish and thrive and blossom and bloom. And the end result, the great promise of the Bible is that one day we will arrive in this flourishing garden from the book of Revelation where God dwells with humans and wipes away every tear. Lately, as I've been putting my son Frankie to bed, uh, we've been singing the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know to him. But instead we put his name right in the song. So we sing, uh, Jesus loves Frankie, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he's just growing out of the phase where he likes to be rocked. And so each time I rock him, I think this might be the last time that I get to sing this song to him. Each time is so precious right now. And a few months back, as I was singing this song to him and putting his name right in it, and I was rocking him, uh, he looked at me and then he got a furrowed brow and he pulled out his pacifier and he said, no, Jesus loves Hulk. And so I sang, Jesus loves Hulk, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then a few weeks after that, he looked at me again and furrowed his brow and pulled out his pacifier and said, no, Jesus loves Ant-Man. And then a few days after that, he said, no, Jesus loves Cassie, who's Ant-Man's daughter. But then he said he wanted to go back to Hulk. So for a while now, I've been singing a lot of nights, Jesus loves Hulk, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you don't know about the Incredible Hulk, in the comic books, he was originally a scientist who was exposed to some kind of radiation causing a mutation that turns him into a giant green monster, the Hulk, whenever he loses his temper. And so the Hulk will say things like, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And maybe like you during the pandemic, I've been tired. I've been stressed. And sometimes I have felt like the Hulk. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And sometimes I haven't been the dad or husband that I planned in life to be. I haven't been the gardener that I want to be for my garden. And so there has been for me real comfort in singing Jesus Loves Hulk. It's a reminder each night that if Jesus loves Hulk, that means that Jesus could love me too. And that this Jesus wants to help me. Maybe during the pandemic, you haven't been the gardener that you want to be either. I want you to know, Jesus loves you. He wants to help you. Put him in charge of your life. You can ask Jesus for help with your garden. You can ask Jesus for the power to say thank you or ask a question or pray a prayer. Or you can ask him for the change of heart to even want to do those things. You can put him in charge of things. Maybe you've never put Jesus in charge of your life before. Or maybe it's not a sentiment that you have expressed in a long, long time. I want to invite you to put Jesus in charge of things today. 
And I want to give you a few moments right now to ask Jesus for help with your garden. In your own words, in your own way, tell Jesus that you want his help, that you want to put him in charge of things today. If you're asking for the help of Jesus for the very first time, we would love to partner with you on your journey to support you in whatever way we can. Whether you're watching live right now or later in the week, let's be in this together. So if you're viewing on our online platform right now live, you can click request prayer to speak with someone, or you can text GARDEN to 94000. That's GARDEN to 94000. Pray with someone this week. But right now, let's take a moment to talk to this gardener God. Let's talk to Jesus.